0: I want to uh, continue our study in the book of 1 Peter uh, as we continue working through this um, amazing book, eclectic book. Uh, we are now in chapter 4, and um, as we get to chapter 4, it occurs to me, we also are getting to the end of 2019. How many of you, how many of you ever thought that you'd make it to the year 2020? <laughs> I always watched this show on TV called Space 1999. You guys didn't have it down here. It was an English thing. And, uh, and we, we got it. It was like this this model, model spaceship that would land on the moon, and it looked so fake. Even back then, it looked like you could see the little fish wire, you know, as it was landing on, on the moon. And, uh, and I thought to myself when I was a kid, 1999, I'll never make it till 1999. And now it's almost 2020. How many of you are planning on doing New Year's resolutions in 2020? Have you given up on that idea altogether by now? (laughs) How many of you uh, uh, make resolutions and you're just so disappointed by the fifth day of the year that you just can't keep those resolutions? Well, join the club. You are not not, uh, a unique part of the human race. Introducing a new habit into our lives is one of the hardest things for human beings to do. Did you know that? In fact, many scientists put it in the nearly impossible category to add a habit into our already full lives. Listen to this. Neuroscience teaches us now that research, uh, through the research that they've done, is that a huge portion, almost 95% of our brain, is actually unconscious brain activity. Stuff you don't even think about. And in the normal run of a day, 40% of what you do is actually done without thinking about it at all. You actually function on autopilot 40% of the stuff you do in the run of a day. Most of the things we do, we just do because we've always done them. How many things have you done today without thinking? I mean, for those of us that have driven for a while, I'm amazed how I leave one place and get to the next place, and I think to myself, I really don't remember driving over here. (laughs) Yeah. I've learned to, to drive with my eyes closed. I mean, think of the things we do. We get showered, brush our teeth, check our cell phone. I mean, that's a new one I've introduced in my life. The first thing I do is I wake up and I look at my cell phone. Now I didn't do that 20 years ago. We b- breathe, walk, you know, get put one foot in front of the other. Uh, you know, if, if there's a fire, what do you do? <laughs> Let's pretend we all go to the uh the the schools in the gymnasiums when they say when there's a fire and you can't get out you need to stop drop and roll. Okay, good, good. Running is a good thing. Running is a good thing, but I was aiming at something different there. That's right, if you're if you're on fire. <laughs> That's true. That's true. If you're on fire. Sorry, oh, such a bad illustration. Think about the the responses that you do that you don't even plan on doing, not, not even just like brushing your teeth or what you do in case of an emergency when you're on fire, but think about the stuff that you do, the way we treat people, autopilot, right? We, we kind of just are on autopilot when, when, what about something we fear? I mean, we have this natural reaction, what we love, we know what we love, we aim for what we love, our, our reaction when we approach difficult challenges, our usual response to stress how we organize our thoughts, our tasks, our stuff in our lives. Listen, we are habitual beings. We get into the rut of doing something, and when something presents itself as a challenge or a stressful moment in our lives, we kind of go on autopilot. We are habitual beings. And if you don't think you're a habitual being, ask your spouse. They will will tell you all of the habits that you're missing along the way. Scientists have discovered we actually introduce a new activity into our lives when we do it over and, over and over and over again, when we do that new activity, we actually develop a new neural pathway in our heads, in our, in our brains. And when we do this, we, 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 we establish these neural pathways by doing things regularly on a consistent basis. We have protocols that we follow, things that we actually do. A protocol is a system of rules and acceptable behavior used for official ceremonies and occasions. That's the, that's the Webster's definition of it. But basically this, protocols are this, everything that we decide to do beforehand, so that when occasion rises in our lives, we naturally fall into this protocol, this habit. A new neural circuit gets stronger every time we do the same thing in our lives. It's kind of like a river running through, all my illustrations usually come down to fish, so this one does as well kind of like a river running through a valley. If you have a river that runs through a valley, it could start as a very small trickle, but the longer it runs through that same pathway, the more, the, the more path it's going to carve out, the deeper that it'll get. In the same way, when we do the same things over and over and over in our lives, we are creating neural pathways in our lives so that it naturally flows. What our actions are become our habits. The good news is for human beings, you can develop a new neural pathway in three weeks. So if you decide that you want to develop a new habit or or morph a habit that you're already doing, replace that habit with something else, you can do that within three weeks. And the chasm begins to grow, the pathway begins to form. Redirecting, this is another part of the good news that I have for you this morning. If you want to develop a new habit... You can actually do this all the way through your life. You're never too old to develop a new habit, a new neural pathway. Human beings have the ability to do this all the way through their lives. So the truth is, you can teach an old dog a new trick. The key is to transform our thinking about what used to do, what we used to do, and reroute it to what we want to do. Aristotle in 350 BC, this is 300 years before Jesus Christ, said, we are what we, re- we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. In 1 Peter 4, Peter is talking to a group of Christians who have been scattered by the Roman Empire, put in different places all around what we know as Turkey, Europe, area. And he's talking to these Christians who have come out of a culture where they have developed habits in their own lives. Not all good, mostly bad. And they continue to live among a group of people, this culture, that has habits that are acceptable. But Peter says they are no longer acceptable to those who follow Jesus Christ. So these Christians are struggling with the personal habits or the cultural habits that are going on all around them. And so he starts in 1 Peter 4 and verse 3. He says this, The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That's a pretty depraved list, wouldn't you say? <laughs> the time that has passed suffices. What he's saying is, doing all of that activities, the time has 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 sufficed. It's sufficient for doing all of these activities that you're used to doing or that you're used to living among. And the two things that are are the common denominator in this list, number one, intoxication, and number two, sexual immorality. Intoxication is the effort that we put forward to numb the pains of life, and so we miss what God is doing and sexual immorality is an invitation to indulge our never satisfied flesh at the cost of our own soul this brings me back to 1 Peter 2:11 where Peter began this conversation and he said to us the passions of the flesh wage war against our soul these are the passions of the flesh now listen alcohol is not evil jesus made wine paul told timothy take a little wine for your stomach's sake The thing in of itself is not evil. The abuse of it is what risks our soul. Sexual activity is not a bad thing. Who invented it? God did. And he not only invented it, like there's so many things I do in the run of my life that are a chore. This, however, doesn't fall into that category. He invented it with the ability to cause pleasure. God takes pleasure when we engage in this kind of an activity. But sexual immorality is taking what God gave us and twisting it into something evil and depraved. There are two ways to think about things that Peter says. You can do things the Gentile way or the Jesus way. The Gentile way is that Gentiles will use all of these activities to get maximum pleasure with minimum resistance. Whatever is the path of least resistance to get maximum pleasure, that determines what I'm going to think about this activity. do it in a way that satisfies self over all other things. The Jesus way is that Christians participate in these activities and all other activities for one reason, church. And what is that? We do all things. Whether we eat or we drink or whatever we do, we do all to the what? We do all to the glory of God. This is the goal of the Christian's existence. So Paul is writing to these these Christians, these brand new Christians are now scattered among all of these different cultures that are constantly trying to inundate these Christians with the things that they used to do or the things that are acceptable in society. And Peter writes to them and says, listen, your goal in life, your protocol for doing these kinds of things is different. It's no longer to satisfy self. You are here to satisfy God. Now, fast forward to 2000 and almost 20 times don't change, right? Rome was a little further along in this depravity scale than we are. You should, you should probably know that in case you don't now, you do. Pagans in the first century, the people that didn't know God and didn't care about God and even were in outright rebellion against God, viewed Christians as killjoys. They saw Christians as, as being the, you know, the wet blanket on all the parties. Typically, these Christians were would not participate in the forms of Roman entertainment that were available. They would back out. They wouldn't go to the theater. They wouldn't, go to, um, they wouldn't go to the theater because any theatrical performance always ended up with some risque performance, some sexual activity on stage. And so Christians decided they weren't going to do that. And they wouldn't attend the gladiator games or the chariot races because in those things... Somebody always ended up dying for the entertainment of the people that were watching. And so Christians decided that they were not going to involve themselves in these activities any longer. Christians typically were known as those who condemned the pleasures of indulgence that the Romans embraced. They would often speak about sex outside of marriage and how that was wrong. And they would often talk about how drunkenness was improper. These were two of the top ones that they were known for. And it's interesting that in the list that Peter gave us in 1 Timothy 4, those two things are the common denominator for all those activities that he listed. What he's saying is the time is sufficient, the time has passed for us involving ourselves in all that stuff. It's time to develop new neural pathways. It's time to start thinking differently about each one of these activities and many more it's time to understand that whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. Paul also talks about this in Romans 12 too. This is one of my favorite verses. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what church? Renewal Renewal of the mind. Read that by saying, Be transformed by developing new neural pathways, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Church, we have the ability to look at all of the functions of culture around us, the stuff that we've been involved in and the stuff that we've avoided by God's grace. And we have the ability to analyze them through the lens of God's Word and determine what is God's will and what is not God's will. Our goal as believers is to think differently about every part of our lives than we used to. And by the way, the end product for these Christians in Rome... Rome owned the whole world at this point, the whole known world. And the end product for those that would do this is they were ostracized by Rome. They were seen as rabble rousers. They were misunderstood. And so people ended up fearing them. We've already talked about them, that, that people would say that they're crazy religious zealots. And church, I need to remind you that In our struggle to be pure and think correctly about these items in our lives and many more like them, in our effort to reinvent the way we think about all of these things in our lives, we are not to see culture as our enemy. This is challenging because I don't know about you, but this past week I've turned on the TV and I always get to see the same stuff. And I think to myself, culture really seems to be my enemy, But in reality, culture is not the enemy. We just don't fit in anymore. We don't think about things like they do. Our thinking is changing about how we deal with suffering, sex, and substances. And the fact of the matter is, church, when you start thinking differently than the people around you, you will stick out. You will end up being different. You will not be an enemy of culture but you will stick out. Jesus made sure we understood this because he gave us this analogy by calling us the lights of the world. And no one lights a light and puts it in a dark place and then puts a big canopy over it. That's silly. You light a light, you put it in the darkness so that it'll brighten up the darkness. Jesus is using this illustration to us right after he talks about, in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the Beatitudes. He goes through the whole list and then he says, you are going to think differently about a lot of stuff. And understand when you do, you're going to stick out. But there's a purpose. Your light is meant to penetrate the darkness. Peter goes on in verse 4. With respect to this, Culture, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Gentiles do what feels right, Christians do what God loves, and they stick out. And here's the pathway sometimes you just don't stick out, sometimes people will make fun of you, sometimes people won't want to be your friends. Michael, I was talking with him, and he came up with this great list, and I I put it on the screen for you. I think it's terrific. This pathway from aligning, because it's happened to me and I'm sure it's happened to you. It almost always follows this you're invited to to participate in something that God would not approve of. Then the inviter clearly understands you are not going to participate in it. Then they interpret your non participation negatively and they say that you are judgmental then your relationship with them is strained and perhaps even broken after too many of the ex- experiences occur. Has that ever happened to you? Yes. It's frustrating because in a world that says uniqueness is great, in reality, they do not want you to be unique. They want you to be like them. And the fact is, church, we may be maligned for doing good, because they don't understand why we make our protocols the way that we do. When I went into ministry, I established a new protocol for myself. Some of the leadership, probably most of the leadership, maybe some, know what this protocol is. I decided when I went into the ministry, I would not drive in a car with a female alone, and I would not meet to counsel or talk with a woman alone in a, a space that didn't have somebody else there present down the hall or right around me or something, with a window in the door. I, I was pretty specific about these protocols. I've, I've kept with that, I, 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 as far as I know, I think I've kept that pretty much my whole ministry. It's kind of weird now that I have girls that are like 20 years old, and I'm driving around in a car with my 20-year-old daughter, and I'm thinking to myself, am I destroying my protocol here? Because <laughs> to me, she's like still in a car seat, right? I'm walking down the street and she reaches over and holds my hand and she's almost as tall as I am and taller than her mother is. I'm thinking to myself, people are going to think bad things about me. But I've had these protocols for so long that it's the first thing that comes into my mind. I don't want to break these rules. And it's not because they're in Scripture. It's because these protocols have started with a trickle down my mind and I have developed them into something that is deep and strong. I don't want to give any reason for anybody to doubt my devotion to my wife and to my family. Let me ask you this question. What is not shocking in our culture that you refuse to do that people malign you for? There's so much, right? There's so much that we won't do in culture, that we won't do with our friends, that we end up being maligned for. I mean, and there's so many things that are really acceptable in culture. Pornography, getting drunk, Locker room talk, going to drinking parties, mind-numbing entertainment that steals away the minutes of our lives. And there's so many things that we should... And the list is longer than that. That's just what I came up with you know, off the top of my head. The list is much longer. How many things do we decide we are not going to do The culture says, I don't understand why you wouldn't get involved in this. Everybody does it. When you participate in these things, it's a clear reminder to them that you believe this behavior is unacceptable to God, and therefore you inadvertently remind them of one thing. God is their judge. And they don't like that. In fact, the next verse says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to what, church? They will, oh, sorry, there it is. But they will give an account to him who is ready to what? Judge. The living and the dead. God is the final judge. Every one of us will stand before God. If you know Christ as your Savior, i got to tell you this. This is a little off topic, but so many Christians don't know this. If you stand before God someday and you know Christ as your Savior, there is no judgment for you. You stand there. There's no big screen. There's no reminders of who you used to be. All of that has been washed away by Jesus Christ. And when you stand before God on that day, all He sees is His Son in you. You are forgiven. You are washed clean. You do not carry your past or your future sins. They have been forgiven and forgotten. But every person that does not have Christ as their Savior will come under judgment someday. This is why the gospel, verse 6, was preached to those even who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way that God does. We preach the gospel to those who are dead in the hope that they will receive the Spirit of God and live. All of us were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God, rich in mercy, gave us his Son and gave us his grace. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I love how this starts. The end is at hand. Reminds me of... uh, People standing on the sidewalk every once in a while. <laughs> the end is near. There's no, In other words, there's no time to waste on this. We have to get started today with new protocols, new ways of thinking. We may have to trash some old ways that we've thought about things. But there's no time to waste. The end of things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Peter is saying, get ready now. Suffering is coming. And listen, church, suffering tests our protocols. Suffering tests our protocols. You don't know what's coming this week. You don't know what's coming by the end of the day. But God does. And if you don't have protocols established today for where God stands in your life, and for what you're willing to and not willing to surrender to God, it's going to be either easy for you or very, very rough for you to go through what's to come. So he says, be self-controlled. Self-controlled is a fruit of the Spirit of God. The opposite of self-controlled is flesh-controlled. This is how we respond in difficult situations. This is why Paul or Peter started out this whole thing by saying, arm yourselves, first of all, in your minds. The more you indulge the flesh... The weaker your minds become in christ he renews our minds in the spirit we need to put on the armor before the fight arrives so church i would tell you the end is near start making some good healthy protocols now the goal of a christian is not to see how close to the edge he can walk The goal of the Christian is to stand as far away as he possibly can. So many times we think to ourselves, we gotta look. It's okay to look very similar to the world, and God is saying, no. The point is you're a light in the darkness. Don't be a dim one. Be a strong, strong light. So think, um, so be self-controlled. And also be sober-minded. Think correctly about where God stands in your life. When you go through suffering, your thinking will always be tempted to dwell constantly on the comfort blanket you knew beforehand. Do do you know what that means? Let me give you an illustration. If an alcoholic is struggling with alcohol and they decide to give it up and they've been dry for three months, we applaud for that, we give God the glory for that, and we encourage them, keep on going. But if in three months the alcoholic's wife decides that they've had such a fight that she gets up, packs her stuff, and leaves, what is his natural reaction? He will go back to the comfort blanket. This is why the more we indulge ourselves in the passions of the flesh, the harder they are to get rid of. And so we need to establish protocols in our brains, new ways of thinking, new pathways of life, so that we can be Prepared, armed, for when the dangers and the challenges come. And God forbid you have to make a a decision in the valley of suffering. Because if you're not armed for the suffering, you will likely make a bad decision. Arm yourselves in your mind. Develop new neural pathways now. And remember, the protocol for the unbeliever, for the Gentile, is do what feels right. But the protocol for the believer always is. Do what God loves. So find out what God loves. Do it, surrender, and do it soon. Finally, according to this verse, if you aren't armed with protocols correctly before the challenges come, there's one thing that will be affected that you're not going to be prepared for, and that is your prayers. In 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter harps on this several times through this passage, or through, this, through his book. But in 1 Peter 3.12, he says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. Don't you love that? His ears are open to their prayer. Have you ever talked to somebody, and you, you know clearly that they're not listening to you? Yeah, I know. Everybody look at their spouse. But, for God, his ears are open To our prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Establish new protocols now so that your prayer life is not hindered, church. Verse 8, we have these two words, above all. Above all, Peter continues, keep loving one another earnestly. This is perhaps one of my top ten favorite verses in scripture because of the way that it ends. Would you read these last few words with me? Since love covers a multitude of sins. This is what new mind circuitry looks like. Peter is preparing them for not just their current challenges, but also for the challenges to come. And he said, a lot of people are going to come into your group They're going to come in, they're going to be more exiles just like you. And you may have conquered some of these things by developing new protocols in your brain about how you think about sex, about how you think about substances. You may have new protocols, but they don't. And they're going to come in and they're going to sit among you and they're going to be struggling with stuff just like you used to. And they're going to be struggling with stuff that you never would struggle with. That's why Peter finishes this way. He says, above all, love one another earnestly. In this kind of world, you're going to be visited by a whole bunch of people from a whole lot of different places to do a whole lot of different things. They think differently, they look differently, they talk differently. Your one goal is to love them. Love them no matter where they are, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter where they've been. Above all, this is why, above all, this is the most important thing. Love one another earnestly. Some will have different ideas. Some will come from churches that have different ideas, different theologies than you have. Some people will come into our circles with some pretty radical and questionable ways of living. Some will not grow at the same rate that you grow with. Some will struggle with stuff you've never struggled with. You're about to be inundated with people who come into from a very broken culture outside and they will bring that broken culture inside. And our goal as a church is not to ostracize them. It is above all church to love them. That is very difficult because birds of a feather flock together. In the church that does not apply. We accept our birds of all kinds here. And then he finishes with, love covers a multitude of sins. Do you know what that means? That means that you can be the biggest dork that you could be. And I will love you anyways. Love covers a multitude of sins means that you can sin in some of the most perverse ways as you can think. Love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't mean that love love excuses it. It doesn't mean that, that love, love pretends it's not there. It means that love covers it. It means that no matter what you've done or where you've been or who you've been with or who you've been, what you, whatever, it means that in a place where love is above all other things, love covers a multitude of sins. I love that. In your love for them, you will give them lots and lots of space. Always give the benefit of the doubt. Never quick to pounce or tear down. And here's how you love them. Verse 9. This is great. I love that we're doing this today. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Isn't that great? It's not just enough for me to tell you to love somebody, but now we're getting down to the nitty gritty. How do you do that, church? You show what? Hospitality to one another Without grumbling, we welcome the broken. We befriend those who don't look like we do. We welcome everyone. We use our stuff to bless others. And we do it with joy. So we're about to have 60 people at our house for Thanksgiving dinner. We are excited about that. Now I have to tell you, in the build-up to this day, there has been some stress in the Jarvis household. No. We have cleaned areas of my house I have never seen before. <laughs> I have pulled stuff out of corners that I don't ever remember buying. I don't know where it came from, but it was there. And stuff was on it that I could not identify. And we pulled all of the, We did a major renovation for you people. And we worked all week at this. The only reason I tell you that is because my girls are here and they heard some challenging moments. (laughs) (laughs) They endured the challenging moments this week. But I have to tell you from the bottom of our hearts, we did it because we love sharing our stuff. And I'm not saying we stick out above anybody else. It's just a perfect illustration because of what's going to happen today. We're going to have all of you over. We're going to share hospitality with you. But that's not the job of a pastor. That's the job of a Christian. Our stuff is your stuff. Your stuff is their stuff. If we had a, a guest come in today that I've never met before, our stuff is their stuff. I don't care where they've been, what they've done, who they've done it with. Show hospitality is how we show love above all. Do you want to know what Jesus loves? He loves it when we show hospi- hospitality without grumbling. Your home is not your home. Your skills are not your skills. Your stuff is not your stuff. And if you're thinking, well, Craig, it's just stuff. No, it's not. Verse 10, and each has received a gift. Peter continues, use it to what, church? Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I love that term. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God provides. These are your new protocols. Think differently about what you have. Not just the stuff in your house. Not just the stuff you own. But about your gifts that you have to share with others. Start now. Show love. Serve each other even when you don't want to. And do it constantly. If Peter were here right now, he would not hand out a spiritual gifts test. <laughs> he would not say, figure out what your gift is and use it. He would not say that. He would say, do something. Do anything. Show love. Show love. To somebody sitting next to you or sitting across from you and do it quickly because the end is near. (laughs) I interviewed a Muslim several years ago. This guy was a Muslim who converted to Christianity. He now is an evangelist who shares the gospel. When I interviewed him, he gave me his life story. I said, "How in the world did you ever get to be a Christian?" And he said, "When I was a young boy in Syria, I grew up with my family, and we hated two people: we hated the Jews and we hated Christians. My brother went into the army, being older than I was, into the rebellion, and he uh, he ended up dying in a skirmish with the Israelites, with the with with Israel. I was angry." not only because I'd been taught it, but now because these Hebrews had taken away my brother. He was planting an IED that went off, misdetonated, and it ruined his leg. The people that came to help him were Christians. They picked him up, they threw him in a vehicle, and the hospital that they took him to was a Christian hospital. And he's in there, and he's he said, Craig, I was in this position where I was, I was doubting every nurse, every doctor that came my way. I thought they were poisoning me. I thought they were going to kill me in my sleep. But over and over again, they kept showing me one thing that I could not understand. They kept showing me love. In my religion, that was not done. In families, that was not done around me. I couldn't understand why these people kept loving me when all I wanted to do was kill them. As he was shown the love of Jesus Christ through his healing, he became more and more curious about this. And after a matter of months, as people began to not only show him love, but share the gospel with him, he accepted Jesus Christ. His family ostracized him. He ended up going into the ministry and his goal in life is to convert Muslims to the gospel. I asked him, I said, all right, you got to tell me, what can Christians do to minister to the Islamic people? what is the one thing that you would say above all else? He didn't even let me finish my statement. He said, Craig, you got to love them. Because that's one thing that is foreign to Islam and most religions in the world, they don't understand love. Not that kind of love. When we love one another with this kind of above all else kind of love, when we love one another that way, and whoever comes into our circles, we, demonst- we bring the presence of Jesus Christ into a fallen world. And that is hard to ignore. This is what Peter means, I think, by, by saying God's varied grace. Varied grace simply means this. It's grace that looks a whole lot different to a whole lot of different people. It's, it's kind of a blanket of grace that is applied differently to different people. But the thing that makes it common is that it always is absolutely full, chock full of love. Whether you speak, teach, serve, however you show hospitality. Our goal is to bring Jesus into those situations. That's why he finishes this way. In order that in everything. Church, would you say this with me? In order that in everything. Read this. God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's a powerful passage of scripture. So I have two so-whats for you. Number one, I divided it up into two sections. Verse three to six, God receives glory when we establish personal protocols now. The protocol for the Gentile, for the unbeliever, is do what feels right. The protocol for the believer is do what God loves. And do it now. My question to you is, what if we put as much emphasis into our spiritual protocols as we do into our physical protocols. I wonder what kind of believers we would be. If you're sick, you go to the doctor. If you're, uh, if you're getting chunky, you want to go to the gym. You want to make sure that you keep care of this physical body. I wonder what we would look like if we did the same with our spiritual bodies. So in order to do this, this slide that you're looking at right now is one thing that we're, we're planning on doing for 2020. 2020. So I'm beginning our little spiel at my house right here, right now. In 2020, we're going to invest in this program called Dwell. It's going to be an app on your phone. And for those of you that hate to read because you're driving and you might get arrested, this is one way that you can actually hear God's Word on a regular basis. This program allows us actually to put a reading program together for you. And so every once in a while, Village Church East, me... Us, we are going to try and put together a program for you so that you can press play and hear passages of scripture every few couple of days or, or get a reading plan together. You can do your own reading plan or we can do one for you. I'm excited about this and we'll give you more information about this, but this is one new protocol that you can start your life in your life doing right now. We'll have this running in 2020. Uh, this is one of the new things that we're going to do. I'm excited. You're going to, we'll tell you more about that as it comes up. Start a new protocol of personal purity. Take your time that you use for yourself and give it to somebody who needs love. Listen, some of you people in this church, my dad would always say that, some of you people, some of you people in this church, you have time on your hands. And some of you are using that time and just blowing it. If you come to me and say, hey, Craig, I got a few minutes on my hands. I got an afternoon on my hands. I I got this time. I will give you something to do. There is lots to do. And if you want to start a new protocol, remember, you're not starting a new habit. You're rewiring it so that the flow goes a different direction. So take the time that you have and start a new trickle. And make that trickle donating a little time to Village Church East. There's so much to do here. And uh, if you've enjoyed what we've been doing, with your help we could do even more. A lot of you already give a lot of your time, and I want to just say, you are the reason that we are as strong as we are. I love serving with you. But there's still lots to do. So I'd encourage you, take your time and use it for, um, for the Lord. Stop having a relationship you know that is improper. Some of you got to go home and start thinking about your relationships and some of you might want to stop having relationships that you know are taking your heart away from Jesus. Stop avoiding those uh, who are difficult for you to relate to. Start making an effort to speak to and share your life with everyone, especially those you find difficult to connect to. Start developing a new protocol of making new friends and ministering to new people. When Jonathan... Uh, suggested that we, was that you this morning? Knock somebody out of the way and yeah. grab somebody that you don't know? Oh, that was Miguel. <laughs> That's our effort to welcome everybody. You're here today and you don't know somebody on the other side of the, of the congregation. Make an effort to get to know them. Start a new protocol. Start admitting for you might be substances. Start admitting that for you, this substance has a little deeper hold in your heart than it should Has a grip on you that God would not be pleased with, and surrender that to Him and find somebody in this church to walk you through the journey. We are just like these people that Peter was writing to. We are exiles just like them. And the goal for us is to constantly think about, through God's eyes, what we do and what we need to do. Don't let sufferings or hardship or anything else knock you off this mission. Stay on the mission. Don't get knocked off. Number two, God receives glory when we steward his stuff that he gives us well. And so church, arm yourselves in your minds. Your time is not your time. (laughs) Your stuff is not your stuff. It's hard to think that way, isn't it? My time is not my time. My stuff is not my stuff. And it takes a great act of love sometimes to sacrifice that for others. So start a new protocol. Do it once and then do it again. And then do it again. And watch how God starts developing a habit in your life that you will love over time. And don't just start doing these things because it's nice or because I asked you to. Start doing these things because above all, it shows others love. Above all, love one another earnestly. That is a commission to every single one of us because it demonstrates the love of Jesus Christ through us to them. Every time we do it, we invite the presence of God into our world. Now church, I I, know, I understand, I can hear you now. I'm willing to try. It's going to take effort, yes, but it gets easier over time. It does get easier over time. That river, once you begin to redirect it, so the trickle will eventually become a stream, and the stream will eventually become a river. And there are big fish in the bottom of rivers. What protocols are God asking you to start doing today? The longer you wait, the harder it is to start. So church, surrender now. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful for the ability to pastor this church that you give to me and the grace this wide birth of grace that we have in this church where we can talk about really tough things like this, challenge each other like this, and walk away with the attitude of follow-through. And so, Father, I pray more than anything else that nothing that was said today would fall on deaf ears or closed hearts if we serve, if we speak, if we teach, if we share whatever we do already, help us to do it better. Help us to do it more. Help us to make a habit of it in our lives. Help us to be willing to establish new protocols of thinking about each one of these things. Not just the negative stuff that we're not willing to do, but the positive things that we know we should do. And help us to be a church that above all shows your love to a world that desperately does not know the meaning of the word. Help us to show them the love of Jesus Christ that was willing to be broken and suffer and shed his blood for those who were yet enemies of the cross. We're a little church but we're bound and determined to do big things. And it begins with how we treat each other and those around us. So, Father, let them know us by our love. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.